At KPMG, we make the difference. It's not just something we say. It's what we do. Our professionals believe in the value of collaboration and the power of technology. We work closely with clients to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity, develop bold solutions that innovate industries, and create better outcomes driven by data. Brighter insights, bolder solutions, better outcomes. It's how our people make the difference, driving growth and value for our clients. KPMG, make the difference. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I've just kind of always known, like, she was murdered. She was at the police department meeting with detectives, you know, weekly, and there wasn't a lot happening. So she kind of went a little crazy and took matters into her own hands. And my grandmother is in some kind of like hysteria, I guess. And everyone kind of thought that she had gone mad. And then especially because she's talking to psychics and voodoo people and yada yada, she was somewhat labeled like a witch around town. And they basically got ran out of that area. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. Happy 2024, bitches. I am shook that it's 2024 already. It feels like a joke. It feels like um, like a futuristic year we'd hear in a movie. Yeah. You know, about the future. I know. But like, it feels worse than ever, you know? <laughs> yeah. I just want the clock to stop, to be honest. Bring me back to like... 2009. Yeah. I was going to say, like, I'd like to start back at the, you know, aughts. Yeah. Mid-aughts. 2005 to the 2010. I'd like when to, we like, met would be amazing to start. Imagine if we could go back to the year we met, which is probably like 2008 or something, and then know what we know now. So we uh, could follow a similar path, but do it better. And earlier. Dude, we could have the first true crime podcast ever. We would start before serial. Right then. Oh, <laughs> Fuck. We would know we would do the odd non case and we would have done it. Damn it. Uh, well, Fuck. once we get our time machine, we'll go back. Sorry, yes. Sarah Koenig. <laughs> yep. Sorry, everyone. Before we start today's episode, if your New Year's resolution was to listen to more great true crime podcasts, you know that we're on Patreon. We'd love to hear have you over there. And we have one full length true crime episode every single week for your earballs. So come join us over there. Honestly, they're amazing cases. They're all submitted by our listeners and they're like a fully fleshed out episode. We're not talking like a dinky little 10 minute episode. We're talking the real deal. So yes. And we have over how many years have we been doing it? We have, we have tons of episodes to binge. Yeah. Yeah. So lots of, lots of stuff over there. So please join us. It is a steal of a deal. I think that's right. Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. So there are very few ideas that permeate humanity as a whole. Ideas where regardless of your culture, religion, or location, we all believe the same or similar things. No matter where you go or what you believe, the idea that children are to be protected prevails. 
Since the dawn of humanity, children have always represented hope, new beginnings, the future, greatness. No matter how many tears they cry or cups of juice they spill, children are always considered sacred. They are innocent, pure, and full of opportunity. And it seems like we're innately aware of the potential a child has. They could become anyone, do anything, be that save the world or live happily just trying to save themselves. Across the globe, we have an unwritten law that children should be cherished. They should be sheltered and shielded, protected at all costs. But the most awful truth is that sometimes we can't protect our children. Sometimes they're outside forces that cause our children harm. These forces could be benign, like a baseball that cracks little Timmy in the nose. But they aren't always benign. Sometimes there are people that cause our children harm. Evil, nefarious, malignant people who do not respect the world's most simple truth. Children deserve their own chance at life. But these terrible people exist, and we do our best to apprehend them. But what do we do when we can't? The setting for today's case is Jackson, Mississippi. Jackson is located along the Pearl River in the west central part of Mississippi. And it's known for being the state capital, a hub for blues music, and chock full of history. In 1822, Jackson was named after General Andrew Jackson in honor of his winning a crucial battle in the War of 1812. Seven years later, that same Andrew Jackson became the seventh U.S. president. And he orchestrated the ethnic cleansing of thousands of indigenous peoples during the Trail of Tears in 1830. During the Civil War, the city of Jackson was a hub for Confederacy supplies. But Union forces burned all of Jackson to the ground in 1863. The people nicknamed the city Chimneyville, since only brick chimneys survived the flames. Today, Jackson is one of the fastest shrinking cities in the country, as in people are moving away from Jackson and to other places. Back in 1980, Jackson's population was a hair over 200,000 people, but now Jackson has a population of less than 146,000. And according to the Clarion Ledger, Jackson might be losing people due to its high murder rate, recent issues with clean drinking water, and other city infrastructure problems. And our first degree for today's case is named Casey. Casey is originally from Jackson, Mississippi, and her grandmother, Maddie Lou Coleman-Wills, raised her there until Casey was about eight years old. At the time of Casey's birth, her biological mother was battling drug addiction and other substance abuse issues, so Casey's grandma Maddie took over. My mother definitely has, you know, battled addiction and substance abuse. So whenever I was born, my grandmother, being her mother, Grandma Maddie, actually took me home, and I was kind of, quote-unquote, I was always called Matt's baby. And my sister and I, we were raised by our grandmother for the first couple years, lost in custody, things were going on. Very early on in Casey's life, she learned that she used to have an aunt named Pamela K. Wills. Pamela was Casey's mother's sister and Grandma Maddie's daughter. But Casey had never met her aunt Pamela before, and she never would. And that's because Pamela K. Wills had been murdered at the age of 10 years old. On my grandmother's mantle, she always had a picture of a young girl, and I always knew it was my Aunt Pam. It was my Aunt Pam that passed away when she was a little girl and I guess I've just kind of always known like she was murdered and my grandmother would always kind of do these weird like she would look at my sister a certain way because I guess my sister looks a lot like her and then she would also kind of look at me a certain way here and there I guess I you know have a lot of mannerisms or something and 
just any time that we talked about her or she came up, we always, she talked about her, but she cried every single time. And my grandmother ended up getting, you know, dementia and Alzheimer's and everything, probably when I was nine, 10 ish. And then she passed away when I was 15. So, you know, all of this is kind of happening, I guess, before I turned eight ish. So I was always aware that my mom had a little sister or that my grandmother had another daughter that was no longer there. Obviously, having one of your children murdered is going to change your entire life, including how you parent. Suddenly, normal things like your kids playing outside or walking to a friend's house feel incredibly dangerous. And that's probably one of the reasons why Casey remembers her grandma Maddie as being incredibly strict. Grandma Maddie was known for never, ever taking her eyes off Casey and her sister. My grandma Maddie, she was just real. She was honest. She was loving. But she was matter of fact. And she was strict to a point that you were kind of terrified. You know, it was one of those, like, you go and you pick your own switch kind of scenarios. One of our biggest, like, rules was, you know, like, we couldn't leave the driveway. It wasn't, like, overkill by any means, but, like, we wouldn't even play in the room by ourselves kind of thing. Like, she always had an eye on us. We had a swing in the backyard. And, you know, if we were out there swinging, like, the back door was open And she was generally sitting on the porch or if she popped in, like, you know, the door was left open. There was one time that we were out there out front, you know, with sidewalk chalk and we got a little carried away and got too close to the street. And I've never seen my grandmother move so quickly. Like it was one of like, she just always had an eye on it. After a time, Casey's father was granted custody. So Casey and her sister moved to Alabama to live with him, but they would still go back to grandma Maddie's for every Christmas and summer break. And Grandma Maddie never stopped keeping a watchful eye on them, even from afar. My grandmother called us weekly, always caught up. She always sent us every kind of card, you know, St. Patrick's Day, Valentine's Day, even the small holidays, we got cards and things like that. She wanted to know that we were safe, and she always wanted to know that we were healthy. And she was very much always on top of that. Honestly, a shout out to Grandma Maddie. Love Grandma Maddie's energy. She's like matriarch, caretaker fuck with me and find out. Mm -hmm. Love it. I love it. What a badass bitch. And even though as a child, Casey had sometimes struggled to understand her grandmother's harsher parenting style, I feel like any kid would. We hate being parented. We hate, we hate rules. We hate discipline. Like kids don't like it. Once you're an adult, you're like, thank God for that. I would have gone off the rails. No, when you're a kid, you like hate the strict parents. And then you like, as you get older, you're like, oh my God. I get it now. You need the structure. The structure is good. Right. So obviously, Casey is an adult now and she gets it. With the wisdom of age, Casey can now comprehend the heartbreak that Grandma Maddie must have endured when little Pamela went missing. Without a doubt. And now Casey can also see the absolute hell that her Grandma Maddie went through trying to find her 10-year-old daughter. Ultimately, we bet that Grandma Maddie was just trying to keep Casey safe. That is clear. And Grandma Maddie wasn't going to let what happened to Pamela happen to Casey, her sister, or anyone else for that matter. I get it. You lost a kid, so it's hard to ever not love your other ones that are still around. So what happened to Pamela K. Wills? Who on earth would murder an innocent little girl? And if they did it once, were they going to do it again? To answer these questions, you know the drill. We got to go back. Mm. 
Today's case begins in September of 1971. You know, picture bell bottoms, maxi dresses, frayed jeans, and flowing Farrah Fawcett style hair. I think it was one of the best times for fashion, for aesthetics. Like, I wish I lived in this time. You would kill it as a 70s girly. Well, I have 70s style. I want to go to like the 50s. I want like, I want to live in like the Mad Men era. Yes. Okay. I can see that. We'll visit each other. Yes. You go there and I'll go there. So when we're thinking about music, Donny Osmond's Go Away Little Girl and Aretha Franklin's Spanish Harlem topped the charts. And in TV, people are watching the Beverly Hillbillies, All in the Family, and the Mary Tyler Moore Show. Those were all the popular primetime hits of the time. Richard Nixon was the president of the United States at this time, and the previous decade's civil rights movement brought up many social and political issues concerning Black Americans, gay people, and women. And those issues remained at the forefront of most of America's minds in the year of 1971. Definitely. And activists were making sure that their voices were heard at this time, and sometimes their voices were responded to with violence, which was the case in Jackson, Mississippi. So a little earlier in May of 1970, Jackson law enforcement opened fire on a group of 100 black students who were protesting the Vietnam War at Jackson State College. Twelve people were injured and two people, Philip Gibbs and James Green, were killed. Philip and James weren't involved in the protest. They just walked near them. And in August of 1971, a month before today's case, the Jackson Police Department raided the Republic for New Africa's headquarters. As a result, a shootout occurred and Jackson police officer Lieutenant William Skinner was killed. For decades to come, this raid would be highly controversial for Jackson residents. And needless to say, the Jackson police had a complicated relationship with their community in the 70s. And this is also shown in today's case, where the authorities appear to have dropped the ball in the investigation for two missing children. But that wasn't uncommon for any police department in the 1970s. According to NPR, most police departments in this time period didn't even train their officers on how to handle child abductions, which is so insane to think about. Insane. And it's like, I try to understand why, like maybe they weren't happening as much, maybe without social, it's hard to remember things before social media, right? Like how information was disseminated and how if data isn't collected and then shared, like maybe they didn't know it was happening. You know, I think there was a lot of disconnect between neighboring jurisdictions. And if you were in a small town that was safe, you didn't realize that children were like being plucked off the streets. I don't know. I think it's also just like culturally, it was the same. It's the same thing back in the day where like pedophilia wasn't talked about. And like a lot of these things were kind of like brushed under the rug. So at that time, they probably were just assuming that these kids were runaways and then they just left on their own free will. And the police were just kind of thinking the same. They're like, cool. Then we don't have to do anything if they're runaways. Cool. That's the parents' problem. Easy explanation. Right. And NPR reported that most 1970s police departments enforced rules that didn't let a parent or guardian report a child missing for a certain amount of time. But I feel like we've heard that even into earlier, like more recent decades. Like you usually have to wait, you know, 24 hours, 48 hours, which is problematic, mostly because when there is an abduction, the most dangerous period of time is that first 24 hours. It gets even more dangerous in 48 hours and even more dangerous in 72. The longer an abductee is with their captor, the more danger they're in. So it just seems strange that, especially with children, they wouldn't just jump into action 
And with children, they see that the most dangerous time is really the first three hours. So waiting at all is always a mistake. And 1971 was right on the precipice of law enforcement and politicians actually starting to care about missing children. In the late 1970s, pamphlets featuring missing children's photos became really popular. And by 1984, those same photos appeared on milk cartons, pizza boxes, and mailers like, you know, the infamous Johnny Gosh case. And in 1985, President Ronald Reagan gave a speech highlighting that more than 1 million children ages 10 to 17 would go missing from their homes every single year. And that's how you get the rise of the things like stranger danger. Which we now know is a problematic idea since most child abductors aren't usually strangers at all. Statistically, the kidnapper is usually someone the child knows, which is like weirdly more scary, but also comforting in the same way. It's like, does that give us more of a chance of rescuing a child if they're with a creepy neighbor. I don't know. You know, all of this is just terrifying that like children go missing at such an alarming rate. But the fact that now, you know, the political climate seemed to be taking missing children's cases more seriously, it's much better than the like, call us back in 72 hours mentality that police were promoting before. And those were the kind of problematic philosophies that allowed serial killers to run rampant in the 1970s. Yeah. In the years between 1970 and the year 2000, those were sometimes referred to as the golden age of serial killing because nearly 90% of all known serial killers in the U.S. were active during that time. Even as early as 1971, you've already got some of these infamous names that I think that we all know. The Zodiac Killer, Ted Bundy, Randy Stephen Kraft, Ed Kemper, Patrick Wayne Kearney. And we haven't even started talking about the serial killers who were active somewhere in the South during the 70s. Right. So if we're talking about serial killers who were within driving distance of Mississippi around this time, you've got Richard Valenti. He killed three children in South Carolina in 1973 and 74, 13-year-old Alexis Ann Latimer, 14-year-old Sherry Jan Clark, and 16-year-old Mary Earlene Bunch. And then there's Samuel Little, who was active from 1970 to 2005. He was confirmed to have killed eight women but has confessed to murdering 93. And of those 93, he claimed at least three of them took place in Mississippi. And the amount of serial killers who we don't even know about is probably staggering, especially since freeway killers were relatively frequent during this time. So that's when people would travel along freeways, kill their victims, stash their bodies near somewhere on the freeway, and then continue traveling across the country. And since Pamela and Patricia were last seen on a highway, it's probably worth considering, but we will return to this later. Back in 1971, a 48-year-old grandma, Maddie, had her hands full from raising her three daughters. There was her eldest, Sandra, her middle child, who would later become Casey's mom, Teresa. And then there was the youngest daughter, Pamela. Grandma Maddie's husband, Jewel Wills, was around too. But he was a disabled war veteran who was navigating his own problems. According to the Clarion Ledger, he couldn't work or help with the bills. And as Casey tells it, he wasn't super involved in raising Sandra, Teresa, and Pamela. Grandma Maddie was very much the matriarch, and everyone knew it. Even, like, my dad was like, oh, you know, your, your Grandma Maddie could be scary. She's not a small woman, either. I mean, I think she's, like, a good 5'9", and... She carried herself, you know, shoulders back kind of thing. But Grandma Maddie had to be the kind of woman who could put her foot down because Casey's mother, Teresa, really needed that type of strong influence. 
According to Casey, Teresa was a very rebellious teen. She wanted to do whatever she wanted, whenever she wanted, and she did not care about the consequences. I think my mother was a little bit of a hellion. She, you know, loved Janis Joplin and, you know, she was a little hippie and she was gorgeous. So she got a lot of attention and she always thought she was older than she was. And I think kind of middle kid syndrome definitely kicked in. She thought she was going to go be famous and travel with the band. According to the Clarion Ledger, on Tuesday, September 14th of 1971, 16-year-old Teresa was reported missing. But here's the thing. She wasn't actually missing. So according to our first degree, Casey, Teresa had told her mom, Maddie, that she was going to an event, something that sounded official with supervising adults present. But instead, Teresa ran away to New Orleans. Teresa intended to come back within just a day or two, but she kind of wanted her to do her own thing. But then the weather got really bad, so she couldn't return to Mississippi. And remember, there's no cell phones. Like, if your plans change, it's like, there's bad weather. I can't come back. The bus isn't picking us up. Like, how do you tell your parents something's wrong and plans have changed? So as a result, her mother reported her missing. I think that she painted a picture like she was going to, for lack of a better word, I keep saying like a church camp, but it was almost like future leaders of America. I think she just lied about what she was doing, but she was essentially going to do drugs and have sex and rock and roll. Usually it was Teresa's job to watch her little sister Pamela after school. And this is obviously a pretty normal thing. She was 16 years old. I'm sure anybody with siblings has either babysat their younger siblings or has been babysat by older siblings. My mother's kind of after school chore was to watch the girls. And that particular day, she was packing the bag. She was very busy. She was trying to run away to New Orleans. And that she told the girls that they could go to the little, you know, corner store by themselves, but to, like, not cross whatever street or busy intersection. And that my mother just kind of packed her bag and left, and she was gone. And that's why she wasn't there to watch the girls, I guess. But since Teresa was out of the state, she wasn't there to watch Pamela after school. And around this time, Grandma Maddie was fully employed as a switchboard operator at the Baptist Hospital in Jackson. And it's not like she could take off work every afternoon until Teresa returned to keep an eye on Pamela. She had bills to pay. She had two other children and a husband that she was shouldering the bills for. I mean, this woman was carrying a lot. Because sure, Maddie's husband, Jewel, was around, but as we mentioned, he wasn't much for helping out with anything because he was dealing with his own problems, right? But truthfully, none of these details really matter because none of what happened next was Teresa, Maddie, or Jewel's fault. On the morning of Friday, September 17th of 1971, Grandma Maddie saw Pamela out the door as she headed off to Boyd Elementary School. In interviews with the Clarion Ledger, Grandma Maddie said, Pamela got ready, and I sat on the couch and waited for the ride to come. I said, daughter, you're beautiful. Pamela had long blonde hair, and she was wearing a long sleeve dress with a pink and floral pattern. After school that same day, Pamela brought her friend, 11-year-old Patricia Ann Mizzle, to her house to hang out. Patricia had brown shoulder-length hair and horn-rimmed glasses, and she lived nearby with her parents, Mrs. and Mr. Jim Oswald. Her house was literally just around the corner from Pamela's. The trip from Patricia's house to Pamela's was a 10-minute walk, tops. So it's probably safe to assume that this wasn't the first time Pamela and Patricia spent time together after school like this. 
especially since Patricia and Pamela had so much in common. Not only were they close to the same age, but Patricia, like Pamela, had a house full of sisters. Four sisters, to be exact. That's probably a crazy house over there. Totally. And the two young girls may have bonded over their shared desire to get even a single minute of bathroom time. Plus, Pamela was known to love laughing and girl talk, and I'm sure she appreciated having a gal pal to chat with. And Pamela was witty and clever, so I'm sure Patricia appreciated her as well. My mom just said that she was just kind of a fun, goofy kid. She was definitely the baby, but she was just a beautiful, bouncing little girl. And my mom would say that, you know, whenever she would go out on a date or hang out with her friends, that basically Pam always had a bedtime, but that, you know, she would stay awake and sneak into my mom's room to I had my mom spill the tea, and she wanted to know, like, what's it like to kiss a boy, or did y'all hold hands? Like, she was just very curious of, like, what the older kids were doing. You know, she was very smart, and she was very neat. She had immaculate handwriting, and she was just super neat and organized, and everything had its little place, but she was also very inquisitive and wanted to know what growing up was like or what going on a first date would be like. On this Friday afternoon, Pamela and Patricia told Grandma Maddie's husband, Jewel, that they were going to walk to a department store. And I'm sure this didn't raise any red flags for Jewel. I mean, remember, this is the 70s. This is what people did. This is what kids did. And the store they were going to was in the Meadowbrook Mart Shopping Center, which was only two blocks away. And it's likely that the little girls had made the trip before. But tragically, this time would be different. This trip would be different. Because 10-year-old Pamela K. Wells and 11-year-old Patricia Ann Mizzle were never seen alive again. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. 
Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. When Pamela and Patricia did not return from their trip to the store on the afternoon of Friday, September 17th of 1971, Grandma Maddie knew something was wrong. She immediately called the police about her now second missing daughter. Right away, the news outlets began reporting that three girls from Jackson, Mississippi were believed to have run away. And the three girls that they were referring to were 16-year-old Teresa, 10-year-old Pamela, and 11-year-old Patricia. For a while, the press reported this as if all three of them were together, but we obviously know today that that's false. Teresa had gone off on her own that Tuesday, and the two younger girls had vanished on Friday. They did assume at one point that everyone was together. Teresa eventually got a hold of her mom and was like, hey, I haven't came back because of the storm, yada, yada. And she's like, well, Pam's gone. And of course, Teresa's like, what do you mean? And then she she makes it home as soon as she can. Within a week, the Jackson Police Department and the Mississippi Highway Patrol were on the case. But no newspapers report them as having suspects or evidence of any kind. And shortly after it started, it appears as though their investigation stopped. So based on her research, the Clarion Ledger only published one photo of the missing girls. And it was on Thursday, September 23rd, nearly a week after Pamela and Patricia disappeared. And another thing, if anybody had seen Patricia, nobody would have recognized her. And this is because the picture in the newspaper used was two years old. There might have been a big difference between what 11-year-old Patricia and what 9-year-old Patricia looked like. She wasn't even wearing her horn-rimmed glasses in the photo. But maybe that's the only photo that Patricia's family had to give the paper. We just don't really know why. Right. And days passed, then weeks, and then months. And Pamela and Patricia's case just got colder and colder. And it looked like the police were no closer to solving it, and no one knew why. According to the Associated Press, there was one lead, though it's unclear when that lead came in and how it was investigated. Apparently, someone had seen two girls matching Pamela and Patricia's descriptions, walking along the interstate in Rankin County. This sighting happened around the same time they would have been abducted. But we've pulled up the Google Maps, and Rankin County is kind of far away from where Pamela lived if you're traveling by foot, like an eight-hour walk far away. Yeah, so that seems super unlikely. And finally, Grandma Maddie, after all of this, had had enough waiting, and she felt like the police had dropped the ball, and she wasn't really shy about saying it. She told the Clarion Ledger, the police did some work, but not the extensive work that should have been done. I asked them too many times to check things out that definitely were not checked out. You know, she was at the police department meeting with detectives, you know, weekly, and, you know, there wasn't a lot happening. So she kind of went a little crazy and took matters into her own hands. If the police weren't going to do anything, well, Grandma Maddie would do it herself. And for years, she exhausted every possible avenue that she could in order to track her daughter down. For example, the hospital where Maddie worked for 12 years put up reward money for any information leading to the whereabouts of the two girls. And according to her interviews with the Clarion Ledger, Maddie used up a significant amount of her own financial resources trying to find Pamela. She said, We've spent money, borrowed money, and have had people give us money. We've been to New Orleans, Mobile, Alabama. We've done absolutely everything in the world to find our daughter. 
Yeah, everything in the world, including even some unconventional things like contacting psychics. According to Casey, Grandma Maddie had written one psychic in Chicago, and in June of 1973, he responded, and this is what his letter said. Dear Mrs. Wills, as I tune into the vibrations of your letter, I feel and I know what you have gone through and are still experiencing. As far as the children are concerned, I feel that they are on a spiritual plane. I believe in reincarnation and the survival of the soul. I can only tell you that I feel your daughter is happy and that she loves you. I know, as you must know, that the children met with foul play. As far as what happened is concerned, it seems my mind cannot hold on to definite pictures, other than I see a place about 25 miles west from where they were picked up. It's a place like a private property, where you drive off a dead-end road to an abandoned building, barn, or house. I see three steps you must take to enter the structure. Everything is dried up in the area. There is something that seems like a windmill that is not working. I see broken windows, some rusted old machinery, and a steam engine or something that ran on steam. The land is flat, and there seems to be some water in the area. There is a man in his 40s, a machinist of sort. I guess that's all I get for now. My mind seems to get tired. I also seem to get some type of badge that doesn't make sense to me. So something interesting about all of this that I find is that they were using psychics back in the 70s. Like they were taking this and, like, kind of trusting stuff. them. Yeah. yeah. And they were taking this kind of stuff seriously. I've seen a million newspaper reports from like previous cases we've covered that date back to the 70s that were like psychic recruited for this and psychic determined this. And like I wonder how much at the time it seems like it was just like earlier profiling, like it's intuition. And I don't know, you know, I, I don't think she's crazy for having gone through these methods. I think people are desperate will do anything to find their children. Well, that's what I was going to say. It's like if she obviously is thinking that the police are not doing as much as they can. So it's like when you are in that desperate position and like nobody seems to be helping, like you're obviously going to be going to measures that are unconventional or some people don't believe in or whatever. But it is interesting that he gives this like, it's a pretty descriptive place to go search. Yeah. And feels like definitive. So I'm fascinated by it, right? Yeah. Even though people were turning to psychics in some reputable manner at this time, according to Casey, first degree, Grandma Maddie's community at the time did not support this. They judged her for seeking help from a psychic. And she was essentially labeled as being a witch for doing this, which again seems crazy in the 1970s, but, you know, Maybe it's cultural, like you know, maybe in the rural parts, like they just want to point and say which and whatever, but that's what we're dealing with. Long and short, the girls are gone and my grandmother is, you know, in some kind of like hysteria, I guess. And everyone kind of thought that she had gone mad. And then especially because she's talking to psychics and voodoo people and yada, yada, she was somewhat labeled like a witch around town. And... I believe that the other family ended up suing our family and long and short, like they basically got ran out of that area in the end. Obviously, Grandma Maddie wasn't a witch or mad or hysterical. She was a determined mother who wanted her daughter back. And when she received that letter from the Chicago psychic, she turned it over to the Jackson police. As a reminder, police were taking psychics seriously at the time. Sometimes they even hired psychics that would work with police departments frequently. So this letter to Maddie, I'm sure, was some semblance of hope because for the first time in two years, there was a lead. So when no progress was made in Pamela or Patricia's case, because according to the Associated Press, 
the police felt the letter was too vague. We're sure Grandma Maddie was livid and so heartbroken. She was hiring different PIs and she's talking to, you know, voodoo people and psychics. She didn't just roll over and take it. She was going to find her kid. And I think that that really ruffled a lot of people's feathers and her basically telling the, the town, you know, police department was incompetent and she was taking matters into her own hand. And I think that's also part of the reason that maybe they didn't look super thoroughly whenever they originally checked the land that they were tipped on via the psychic letter. And I also have been very curious of what made them go back and actually find the bodies two years after that. On Friday, February 14th of 1975, more than three years after 10-year-old Pamela K. Wells and 11-year-old Patricia Ann Mizzle went missing, two farmers searching for lost cattle found the little girl's skeletal remains in a leaf-covered ravine west of Vicksburg in Warren County, Mississippi. Upon finding Pamela and Patricia, the farmers immediately contacted the authorities. At first, no one had any idea that these remains belonged to Pamela and Patricia, Actually, the police initially thought they belonged to 49-year-old Ann Wilcox Dawson of Birmingham, Alabama. Ann had gone missing a few months prior, on September 23rd of 74. About a week later, she became the victim of a serial killer named Paul John Knowles, who is also known as the Casanova Killer. In 1974, he murdered anywhere from 18 to 35 people, including Ann. Afterwards, he'd thrown her body into the Mississippi River. Anne's remains were found, her real remains, were found in November of 1977. And this is exactly what we mean when we talk about serial killers just running amok during this time. On Monday, February 24th of 1975, experts used dental records to tentatively determine that the bones the farmers found belonged to Pamela and Patricia. And not long after it was confirmed, Pamela and Patricia had been recovered. When speaking to the Clarion Ledger, Grandma Maddie implied that the girls' bodies were precisely where the letter from the Chicago psychic had indicated. She said, I was in correspondence with some of these psychic people, and this man who lives in Chicago sent me a letter telling us exactly where they were. He pinpointed it to a T. But it doesn't seem to be 100% accurate. The girls' bodies were not 25 miles west from where they were picked up, as the psychic said. They were more like 45 miles west, clear past Vicksburg, but still... Still west. I know, and like kind of near it. Like better than anybody else had said. (laughs) Way, way more insight than anyone else. I'll give it, I'll give that, right? We don't know whether or not this was private property, as the psychic had indicated. But from our research, there was no rundown structure on this property, like the psychic said. But there could have been back in the 70s. It's just really hard to know if it's not like a permitted property with its own address. We just don't know. So that one's left up sort of to the universe. Pamela's murder deeply affected our first-degree Casey's family. They could never fully heal, especially since the killer was never brought to justice. These girls are just kind of forgotten, and it's almost like they found the bodies and then nobody cared anymore. The impact of this tragedy has lasted generations. Casey's grandma Maddie lost a daughter. Casey's mother lost a sister. Casey's aunt Sandra also lost a sister. And that's not even to mention the loss of Patricia's family awful thing that happened has carried through like these generations. I think that it made my grandmother hold her two girls that she did still have alive as close as she could. You know, I've always really wondered the effect that it's 
really had on like my biological mother. Like, is that the reason that she's such a hellion? Is that the reason that, you know, my aunt is so closed off and private? I don't know. I'm just curious. Funeral services for 10-year-old Pamela K. Wills were held at 11 a.m. on Wednesday, May 21st of 1975 at her graveside in Lakewood Memorial Park. And the services for 11-year-old Patricia Mizzle were held on Saturday, May 17th of 1975 at her graveside in Cedar Lawn Cemetery. To this day, no one has any idea who killed these two little girls. And their cause of death, because it's an open investigation, has never been released And to our knowledge, no further information was gleaned from the girls' remains before they were buried. No killer, no evidence, no clues, and no idea what happened. It's horrible. And at this point, nobody really has any answers, which is horrifyingly more common than you would even think. There's seven-year-old Janice Pocket, who went on a bike ride in Tolland, Connecticut in July of 1973 and never came back. And six-year-old Brittany Beers, who was last seen outside of her apartment complex in September of 1997. It's even a similar modus operandi to the very case that started the missing children's movement. The disappearance of six-year-old Eaton Pats in May of 1979. He was abducted on his way to the school bus stop in Soho. Eaton's father just so happened to be a photographer, so he had a ton of high-quality pictures of Eaton. And he printed the photos of his missing son on milk cartons, posters, and more which became, as we all know, the norm for missing children. In fact, in 1983, President Ronald Reagan dubbed the anniversary of Eaton's disappearance National Missing Children's Day. It's held on May 25th each year. But there was hope for Eaton's case, and there is hope for Pamela and Patricia's case as well. Because in 2017, 38 years after Eaton vanished, his killer, 51-year-old Pedro Hernandez, was convicted for kidnapping and killing him. Right. And then, of course, if you are a true crime consumer, you're familiar with the Delphi murders. So 13-year-old Abby Williams and 14-year-old Libby German went missing while on a hike, and their bodies were found the next day at a nearby location. That happened in February of 2017. And like Pamela and Patricia's case, it seemed nearly hopeless. But five years later in 2022, 50-year-old Richard Allen was arrested for their murders. You never know what new investigative procedures can do or how one eyewitness can blow the case wide open. There's always a chance that something good can finally happen. And we have every reason to believe that something good could happen with Pamela and Patricia's case as well. And that goes twice since our first three Casey is committed to bringing more attention to our aunt Pamela's case. And we commend Casey for it because it's absolutely inspiring. I want to know if there's a box of evidence somewhere that you know, how much does it cost to get it tested and how can I do that? And I have wanted to figure out, you know, can I knock on the door of a police department? Can I find the lead investigator or detective? How can I get my hands on this stuff? I think it's time. And I think, you know, my girl Maddie was my mother, essentially. I definitely bonded with her. And I think that it's just getting to the bottom of it or figuring out anything more would just like I'm paying her a thank you for raising me for what she did. It's always tough to discuss silver linings in the context of true crime. The terrible parts of each and every case are just overwhelming. Frankly, it's nearly impossible to imagine anything being good news, from finding the remains to identifying the killer. It's just different shades of awful. Even the words, look on the bright side, feel disingenuous, rude, out of touch. Because for victims' families, 
there will never be a bright side. There will never be a day where this case doesn't haunt them, where their loved one isn't gone. Heck, it's practically coded into victims' families' DNAs to mourn. Their children will mourn. Their children's children will mourn. And when people say, there's hope for these cases, when we say there's hope for these cases, we don't mean that to diminish the hope that's been lost, the trauma that has occurred, the pain that has already been suffered and will continue to be suffered. The English language has yet to create the correct word for this situation, a word that embodies. We know that hope has been gone for a long time, but maybe someday there will be a different hope, one that lives beside the hope that was lost, one that doesn't compete, that doesn't overshadow, a hope that doesn't forget. And if you have any insight, that could help solve today's case. Maybe you can be part of that different kind of hope. If you have any information pertaining to the case of Pamela K. Wills and Patricia Ann Mizzle, please contact the Jackson Police Department with this number, 601-960-0025. A huge thank you to Casey for being our first degree guest for today's episode. If you are listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us, hello at thefirstdegreepodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. Join our Patreon if you're looking for more great true crime content. And stick around tomorrow. We'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close. But not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Andrea Marshbank. Sources for this episode are Ancestry, The Associated Press, The Clarion Ledger, The Hattiesburg American, The Sun, United Press International, The Northside Sun, The New York Times, Fox 59, The Encyclopedia, The LA Times, Jackson PD, Sage Publishing, NPR, Jackson Free Press, The University of Florida, and The Star Herald. And as always, our first degree guest is always our largest source.